7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Today, I am very excited because we get to talk about one of the most instantly recognizable artists of all time, and certainly one of the most famous. More than any other artist, maybe with the exception of Vincent van Gogh, has an artist's appearance been so inextricably linked to their art and legacy as that of the Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. And this is because so much of Frida's work, one-third of her artistic oeuvre, in fact, is self-portraiture. And the fact that her look was so exceptional and unique. Because once you have seen an image of her, it is hard to forget. She was absolutely striking. Her most famous feature was, of course, her distinctive unibrow. And Cass, I just have to say, (laughs) you might not know this about me, but I feel you, girl, because I also have a unibrow. If I didn't do these once a month, (laughs) that would totally be happening. But it seems as if her husband, the famed muralist Diego Rivera, he was into it. He once described her eyebrows as, quote, the wings of a blackbird. They're black arches framing two extraordinary brown eyes. Yeah, she was certainly very striking. And while her unibrow might have been unusual, this was only one aspect of her appearance that really challenged contemporary beauty standards and ideals. In fact, the signature style that we most associate with her was comprised overwhelmingly of traditional Mexican dress and not fashion. For Frida, her clothing, art, and identity were inextricably linked. Not only did she use dress to express and explore her Mexican heritage, and by extension, her political beliefs, she also used it to disguise and distract from the physical disabilities she lived with her entire adult life. And these are all themes which played out time and time again, also in her art. And while Frida enjoyed success as an artist within her lifetime, it was really still overwhelmingly within the shadow of her world-famous husband, the Mexican muralist Diego Rivera. And it was only in the years after her death that Frida catapulted to celebrity. And this really began in the 1970s. And she has since been the subject of scholarly intrigue and public fascination for decades now. In fact, April, I think you will agree with me when I say she has become a full-blown pop icon. Yep. Her face, I mean, you can really find it on anything if you Google it or put it on um, Amazon. It's emblazoned on anything from pins to t-shirts to pillows. I mean, she's a favorite Halloween costume the world over. Um, But more than that, she's also an inspirational figure for many artists, for the feminist and LGBTQ movements, among many others. Um, There's numerous books, essays, plays, and films that have been written about her life. And I have to admit that I myself came to Frida as an impressionable 18-year-old via the 2002 Julie Taymor biopic of her life starring Salma Hayek. One of the most visually striking films I have ever seen. I I love that film, too. And at this time, Cass, people might have thought that they knew everything there was to know about the beguiling Frida That is, until 2003, Um, and in that year, one of the most important discoveries in art and dress history happened at Casa Azul. Casa Azul, or the Blue House, was the place where Frida was born, and ultimately the place where she died in 1954. Today is the site of the Frida Kahlo Museum. 
and it opened in 1958, and the house remains as a testament to her life and legacy, retaining the setting much as it was when she lived there. It has really beautiful color walls and tiles, shelves full of her personal collection of traditional Mexican arts and crafts, pre-Columbian artifacts, books. I mean, the list really goes on. I know. I think I'm adding this to my bucket list of places I have to go. Well, let's go together. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So following her death, Diego entrusted his friend and patron, Dolores Olmedo, with the home and all its contents with the intention of turning it into a museum with one condition. Some of the areas containing Frida's personal possessions were to remain sealed for the duration of 15 years. Well, fast forward to 2003, which is almost... 50 years later, and the contents of these rooms, wardrobes, trunks, and cabinets were opened for the very first time. It took a skilled team of specialists over four years to assess, catalog, and conserve the 6,500 photographs, 22 documents, and 300 garments that had belonged to Frida. Wow. In 2007, the collection was made available to the public for the very first time, And in 2012, Frida's clothing served as a cornerstone of curator Circe Henestrosa's exhibition entitled Appearances Can Be Deceiving, The Dresses of Frida Kahlo. It is this exhibition that provided the foundation for Frida Kahlo, Making Herself Up, which is the current exhibition on view right now at this moment in 2018 at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London until November 4th. And it was co-curated by Cersei Henestrosa and Claire Wilcox, who is the senior curator of fashion at the VNA. And the exhibition presents these incredibly special pieces outside of Mexico for the very first time. And I wish I could tell you all to run out and see it if you're in London. But according to the VNA website, this exhibition is sold out. Which is why we are so incredibly fortunate that there is actually a stunning catalog that accompanies exhibition and which really provided the basis for this podcast today. And I have to say, this has to be one of the most well-done exhibition companion books I have ever seen. Like the exhibition, it merges Frida's personal artifacts with photographs of her and her artwork, and it really produces this compelling visual and textual narrative of one of history's most beloved and captivating artists. It's an incredibly beautiful book, and I cannot recommend getting it enough. So collectively, these two exhibitions provide an enlightening new perspective on Frida, and they explore her legacy through material culture to discover how her dress was an integral and inseparable element of both her art and her identity. And as we will learn, Cass, Kala's self-awareness began from a very early age. She was born on July 6, 1907, in Mexico City. Frida was one of four girls of parents Guillermo Kahlo, who was a German immigrant, and Matilde Calderon E. Gonzalez, who was born in Oaxaca, Mexico, um, of a mother who was Spanish and a father who was Mexican. So Frida's father was a photographer, and it's thanks to him that we have many, many images of a very young Frida, who was the apple of her father's eye. One of these images is from 1911 and captures the four-year-old Frida smiling ear to ear with a big tooth-filled grin across her face. This is especially notable because such a wide, exuberant smile would become an absolute rarity in later images of Frida. 
And we will, of course, post some of these adorable images of a young Frida on our Instagram page. Because Frida's happy childhood that exists in this very brief period was turned upside down after a diagnosis of polio at the age of six. The disease left her with a noticeably weakened and shortened right leg. And it was a disability later compounded by the horrific injuries Frida suffered when her bus was hit by a streetcar on her way home from school at the age of 18. So in addition to suffering numerous fractures across her entire body, Frida's pelvis was impaled by an iron handrail. And she was really fortunate to have survived this accident because it claimed the lives of numerous other people. But the injuries she sustained would haunt her throughout her entire life. But instead of giving up, and resigning herself to her fate and her suffering, Frida turned it into art. And it was while bedridden for three months in the aftermath of her accident that she began to paint. Thanks to a specially made easel and mirror attachment provided by her parents, she could paint herself while resting in bed. And, you know, years for sitting in front of her father's camera had really given Frida a certain sort of special self-awareness that was translated into this very early self-portraiture. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of reminiscent of her father's photographs of her, but it's also her work of herself at the same time. Of course, she had a lot of time to herself during her convalescence. And she once wrote, quote, I paint myself because I am often alone and I am the subject that I know best. So two photographs of Frida taken mere months after her accident reveal a young woman already exploring the dualities of dress. And they both present this rather serious, albeit attractive portrait of Frida, who stares straight at the camera and her hair is parted down the middle and it's secured it back with a tight-fitted bun. But that's where the similarities between these two images end because, well, in the first photograph, she presents a portrait of a rather composed and sophisticated young lady. She's wearing this silk satin day dress with two books that rest on her lap. In the second image, which is a family portrait, Frida poses as a rather dashing young gentleman. Hmm. It's a lovely image. It's complete with a three-piece suit, tie, and pocket square. She is actually quite dapper, I have to say. I'm intrigued, I have to say. <laughs> um, but, I mean, you could argue, like, with both of these images, Frida is absolutely experimenting with the transformative power of clothing especially in relation to gender identity. There's many ways that these clothes can both reveal and conceal. So in both of these photographs that you're referencing, Cass, you know, there isn't any evidence of her injuries, which is really remarkable considering how recent and how serious they were. Really what happened next was that as Frida blossomed into the artist that we all know and love over the ensuing years, she would continue to explore these things in her art. Her cultural identity, her disability, her political convictions would all remain at the heart of her work while also simultaneously being negotiated in the clothing that she chose to put on her body. Scholars have traced the beginnings of her sartorial transformation to the style we most associate with her today to the year 1929. And uncoincidentally, this is the same year that the 22-year-old Frida married Diego, 21 years her senior, whom she got to know after joining the Mexican Communist Party in 1927. And at the time, Diego was already a world-renowned muralist and one of the most famous artists in Mexico. He was also a notorious womanizer. Which might be an understatement. <laughs> yeah, that is true. 
we'll get get into that a little bit more later. But um, he was also an outspoken communist, and his politics went hand in hand with his art, uh, which embodied the nationalist zeal of the era following the Mexican Revolution, which was a time of political upheaval and bloody civil unrest that witnessed the rise and fall of seven different presidents between the years of 1911 and 1920 alone. That is a lot. Yeah, I didn't realize that it was seven. I knew there was a lot of things happening there, but I didn't realize it was quite that many. <laughs> but I guess I guess certain things settled down a bit thanks to the appointment of Elvira Obregón, who was president and became president in 1920. A little sense of stability politically um, replaced this turmoil. And it also brought a renewed optimism and also an artistic renaissance that embraced Mexico's pre-colonial history and heritage. Part and parcel to both Frida and Diego's shared communist beliefs was their rejection of Spanish colonial influence. Spain, after all, had ruled Mexico from the 16th to the 19th century, so 300 years. So instead, they, like many of their contemporary artists, chose to celebrate the native traditions and customs of Mexico. For Frida, this translated into her adoption of native Mexican dress that we most associate with her image today. Art historian and Frida biographer Ganit Ankori traces the beginnings of Frida's look to two particular pieces that entered her wardrobe after her marriage to Diego. The first is a rebozo or shawl, is in evidence in the couple's wedding portrait from 1929, and it's likely a gift from Diego. It's draped across Frida's shoulders, and it's paired with a tiered white dress that has these hand-colored red patterning uh, dots painted onto it. Um, and traditionally in Mexico, the shawl was a gift from a man to his intended bride, and it really possessed the same symbolism as, say, a wedding ring. So while Kahlo never wore a wedding band, she was henceforth inseparable from her rebosa shawl. The second piece of clothing was an Aztec necklace of large round jade beads and a central flat stone seen in photographs as early as 1931. Uh, we basically presume this is also a gift from her new husband. But these two pieces of dress immediately connected Frida with her Mexican heritage, something that she would continue to explore after the couple traveled to San Francisco in 1930. And we're going to learn more about that right after this brief sponsor break. In 1930, Frida made her first trip outside of her home country when she accompanied Diego to San Francisco, where he had been commissioned to paint a mural at the San Francisco Stock Exchange. Frida was absolutely enchanted by the bustling city, and it was enchanted by her. There are numerous accounts and photographs of her from this period, and she actually wrote home rather excitedly to her mother, The gringas really like me a lot and pay close attention to all the dresses and rebozas that I brought with me. Their jaws drop at the sight of my jade necklaces. The photographer, Edward Weston, remembered, quote, I photographed Diego again and his new wife Frida, too. She is petite a little doll alongside Diego, but a doll in size only, for she is strong and quite beautiful and shows very little of her father's German blood. Dressed in native costume, even to harachas, she causes much excitement in the streets of San Francisco. People stop in their tracks to look in wonder. There is one photograph by Weston of Frida and Rivera from this time that especially illustrates his descriptions. And he's captured her peeking out from behind her husband. And if you haven't seen pictures of Diego, he is a very large yeah, man. He's big. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's imposing yeah, he, figure. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's 6'1", he's 300 pounds, and Kahlo's this skinny, 5'3", tiny little person. So she's smiling from behind him, rather coyly, at Weston's camera. And um, with her Rebozo shawl draped across her shoulders and three giant pre-Columbian necklaces across her chest. In another striking black and white photograph by Imogene Cunningham from 1931, Frida's earrings, pre-Columbian necklace, Rebozo, and makeupless face depict a woman of a singular beauty. It is easy to see why people were so infatuated with her. Her look was so different from the contemporary beauty in America at that time, but she was undeniably gorgeous. She is absolutely stunning, as you mentioned, April. And Frida wrote home excitedly to her parents about San Francisco um, initially, but any enthusiasm she held for America, well, it faded after she had followed her husband from city to city, uh, from San Francisco to New York City to Detroit. And this was all over the course of three years. And this was a really hard period for her. It was fraught with difficulty and heartbreak. She suffered multiple miscarriages. And it was while in Detroit that Frida Diego wrote, quote, began work on a series of masterpieces which had no precedent in the history of art. Paintings which exalted the feminine quality of truth, reality, cruelty, and suffering. Never before had a woman put such agonized poetry on canvas as Frida did at this time in Detroit. And that is absolutely true. Um, that Frida suffered greatly both physically and emotionally is laid bare in her paintings throughout her lifetime. And her 1932 painting, Miscarriage in Detroit, is no exception. Yeah, I remember the very first time that I saw that painting in art history class in the 1990s. We're not going to say how old I am. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, it was, you don't forget it once you see that painting. No, absolutely not. I mean, it's like it's like raw emotion on campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and added to that <laughs> stress in her life, we just have to say, Diego, not the greatest husband, you know. Nope. He never really wanted children. He didn't even ever necessarily intend on being a faithful husband. So with all these harsh realities and her physicality and her body that Frida faced in these early years, combined with all of this, it was a lot. It was overwhelming. Yeah. You know, and she's so young. She's like 25 at this point. Yeah. And 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 you know, add that to the fact that They had vehement disagreements about his reverence for America, with which Frida was more or less disgusted. She found the modern American way of life, its industrialist and capitalist society, to be in direct opposition with the traditions that she valued so much in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And as she did with much of her art, she made these feelings explicitly clear, um, especially in this 1933 painting, My Dress Hangs Here, So against a backdrop of New York City crowded streets, skyscrapers, and the Statue of Liberty, a lone Tijuana ensemble with its square blouse and wide skirt hangs on an otherwise empty clothesline. It's noticeably devoid of its wearer, and the ensemble is strung between a golden trophy and, well, on the other side is a toilet, April. Yep. I think she's making a point there. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And Frida would again depict an empty Tijuana costume in the 1937 painting Memory of the Heart, in which she painted herself as straddling two worlds, one with a foot on the beach, the other in the ocean, ready to set sail. Frida's wearing this very fashionable Western silhouette of the period, which consists of a waist-length tailored jacket over a button-front blouse 
and a calf-length skirt. But behind her hangs in the sky a schoolgirl uniform, presumably from her childhood, except for an outstretched arm. But Frida faces forward, tears streaming down her face, her arm linked instead with the arm coming from an otherwise empty Tejuana ensemble of a blouse and a skirt, which hangs suspended over the ocean. I mean, wow. Yeah. So basically, the two outfits from opposite ends of Frida's life are connected um, by the means of this thread, and it runs from uh, one ensemble to the other through a hole in Frida's chest. So her heart has been ripped out and it's lying bleeding on the beach. And this painting in particular serves as a potent example of the power Frida gave to her clothing and the symbolism that she saw within it. And it's also really important because it represents this transitional moment in Frida's life where she's not yet fully committed to the look that would immortalize her to us all. Although this painting is evidence of the final stages of her transformation, because with the adoption of the Tijuana costume, all that was missing was this elaborate updo, and that would be added the following year. By 1938, the year of Frida's first solo exhibition in New York City, her iconic look was now complete. And Frida is captured during this period in a series of stunning photographs by her on-again, off-again lover, photographer, Nicholas Murray. So small sidebar. Or not so small (laughs) sidebar. We love to talk about these romantic (laughs) interludes and affairs on dress. Because it's like, but this could so delicious. I know, but it could literally be its own podcast, their (laughs) tumultuous relationship. (laughs) And we don't have time to go into all the details today, but let's just say that throughout the 1930s, Frida and Diego's relationship, well, it was just a little bit rocky. Uh, We hinted at his infidelities earlier. Um, which included, by the way, an affair with Frida's own sister. Okay, I, I, well, uh, that's all I'm gonna say about that. <laughs> how do you, yeah, how do you ever get over that? And you and, don't. And Frida's sister came and lived with them with her two children. I'm just gonna let that be, so we can move forward. But Frida would take on many lovers of her own. Okay, good for so her during this period, and it, both men and women. And most famously, perhaps, is the Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky. And Frida and Diego even divorced in 1939, only to be remarried the following year. So they really did love each other and respect each other in their own special way. Um, but back to what you were saying, April, about her lover, Nicola Marie. Yeah. So um, where previous black and white photographs of Frida depicted a beautiful, albeit serious side of Frida, Nicola's images of her were decidedly more lively depicting her in her resplendent wardrobe in full color. One of the most famous of these images captures Frida on a New York City rooftop around the time of her solo exhibition at the Julian Levy Gallery in New York City. She has a cigarette in one hand, and she looks to the side and is adorned in a bright yellow and red blouse paired with an equally vibrant blue and white skirt, both of Mexican origin. Her lips are painted, Her cheeks are rouged, and two sky-blue ribbons adorn the braids that are sitting piled high atop on her head. Oh, these images are absolutely lovely. And this photograph in particular embodies the look that would more or less define Frida's appearance for the rest of her life. While her surviving wardrobe contains garments from around the world, including China, Guatemala, and even America, 
it was overwhelmingly comprised of traditional Mexican pieces, and she was especially fond of those associated with the Zapotec women of the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. And Tijuana is a town in the state of Oaxaca in southeastern Mexico, which you might remember was where Frida's mother was from. And in the wave of nationalism that arose in Mexico in the aftermath of the revolution, the Tijuana and especially the Tijuana woman's exuberant dress really became this cultural symbol of nationalist pride. And while Frida herself never traveled to the region, she felt especially connected to this society because of the value and respect that it gave to their women. So... Co-curator of the exhibition at the Victorian Albert Museum, uh, Cersei Hanestrosa, wrote in one of many essays featured in the catalog, quote, The matriarchal society of the Tejuanas held particular appeal for Kahlo, who was building her own image as an outsider, independent, but faithful to tradition, while at the same time embracing modern, liberated lifestyle. Themes of female empowerment would be directly incorporated into her work through her self-portrayal and the style of the Isthmus woman. Circe also says that Frida's adoption of traditional dress was a, quote, calculated stylization. She goes on to say that she used traditional dress to strengthen her identity while simultaneously reaffirming her political beliefs. And fun fact, April, Circe's great-aunt Elfa Hinestrosa and her husband Andres were close friends of Frida and Diego. And Elfa was from the Isthmus of Tuantepoc, and it is believed that it was she who gave Frida her first Tijuana clothing. In the collection of extant garments discovered at Casa Azul, there were 25 Tijuana skirts and 16 Tijuana blouses. These colorful sleeveless blouses, which are known as huipil, evolved over thousands of years in Mexico and were worn by women all over the country. And today, it continues to remain closely associated with the Tejuanan style of dress and is worn at festivals and other important events. But originally, the huipil would have been comprised of a fabric made on a backstrap loom. Um, And this is the type of loom in which the tension is created by the wearer's body, which is strapped to one end, and suspended in the front. So this can work out a few different ways. Um, You know, it could be suspended around a foot and then strapped around the back, which is why it's called a backstrap loom. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's it's, um, attached to a pole that's immediately in front of the wearer's body and then extends around the back. Um, But basically, you need that tension to weave. And the huipil was an untailored garment. So basically, it would be composed of two or three strips of this woven bands of fabric, one single width of fabric, and it could come in various shapes and sizes, ranging from waist length to ankle length. Yeah, and a number of these blouses from Frida's wardrobe are currently on view in the V&A exhibition, and the color combinations of these blouses are wonderful. Brilliant purple paired with yellow or red, green with watermelon pink. And in the 19th century, the vibrant colored patterning featured on these blouses would have been achieved by brocading on that backstrap loom or by embroidery. But by the 20th century, there was this Singer sewing machine that was introduced. And Frida's pills were covered in intricate machine chain stitch patterning, as are many of her skirts. Another noticeable feature of these traditional hippies is the undecorated square at the center chest. And this was left bare so as best to display the gold jewelry that Tejuana women were so fond of. And Frida, I mean Cass, she had an incredible 
incredible jewelry collection. Um, it it's ranged really from pre-Columbian to contemporary Mexican silver. Um, and there's this one really wonderful Nicholas Murray photograph of her wearing two earrings that resembled doll hands. And they were a gift from Pablo Picasso. And one of them still survives. It was discovered lying for 50 years in a box in her desk. Yeah, and while I do not believe that this earring, unfortunately, is on display in the exhibition, please correct me if I am wrong, anyone who has been to see it. Uh, there are many other pieces of Frida's wardrobe and jewelry uh, on display, and that includes two colonial-style blouses, known also known as blusa or camisa in Spanish from the state of Puebla. Like the huipil, the camisa was widely adopted by indigenous populations across Mexico, and it continues to be worn today. And these blouses are distinguished by their construction, which is comprised of an underarm paneling and a square neckline. And while the addition of sleeves and tailoring might be an indication of European influence, the dense embroidery that appears on the sleeves and the neckline mark them as distinctly Mexican. Um, one of Frida's blouses in particular is extraordinary in this effect. Um, it has glass beads on it that have been hand embroidered onto the dress to depict various fauna, flora, birds, and even Aztec dancers. I mean, yes. It's gorgeous and it's so colorful and beautiful. I love it. And both types of these blouses are on view at the V&A with various styles of Frida's skirts, including the Robona, a long wide skirt with a pleated flounce in matching material. And these popular skirts are often made of printed cotton fabrics that were imported from, of all places, Manchester, England. But there's also this brilliant lime green version and the exhibit made of silk satin. And another style of skirt on view is known as the Inagua. Um, and it has this detachable lace flounce or olan at the bottom. And this uh, was detachable so that it could be easily removed for laundering purposes. But Frida's signature style would not be complete without her rebozo shawl a ubiquitous item of clothing for women across social strata. I mean, I was fascinated to learn that the patterning of many of these shawls was achieved by a tie-dyeing technique known as ecot. And this is a technique that has been used by various cultures throughout history, Cass, as you know, around the world. Um, Indonesian ecots might be the most famous, but this process has also historically been used in Japan, Iran, Cambodia, um, and in Mexico, the technique is known as reservado. And basically, I mean, it's ECOT is really mind-blowing, and we do promise to do an episode on this because I actually went to Indonesia a few years ago to look at all the ECOT. But it's, it's incredible because it's so laborious, and it's a multi-step process that involves stringing the warp threads, which is the top and the bottom of a textile, and then you tie them off with string, and then they're dyed, and then they're woven. So the pattern only comes together when the weft threads meet the dyed warp threads. And basically, this ultimately produces a, a kind of like hazy, wavy patterning technique. And it's actually become extremely trendy in the last five to 10 years, I would say. Mm -hmm. You see lots of home textiles that are in quote-unquote printed ecot effects. They're not actually true not ecots. the same thing. And, do <laughs> and don't get me started on double ecots, which is when both of the warp and the weft threads are, oh are tie-dyed before, and then that's what makes the pattern. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing. 
I mean, you can get started, but maybe we will, like you said, reserve an entire episode. You can't tell that I'm obsessed, (laughs) can you? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm not actually sure that Frida herself owned any Ecot Robozos in particular, Um, but there are many shawls of hers that do survive. And they are similar in that they too possess exceptional hand craftsmanship and beauty. One shawl in particular is of the most beautiful watermelon coloring, which I have to say is my favorite color combination of all fashion history. So it's that brilliant green and pink. And at first glance, it is quite pretty, but this shawl's true splendor lies in the details. And the patterning on both ends is created thanks to thousands of teeny tiny knots. And what's incredible is these knots are handmade. So this is a highly specialized skill honed by professional knotters, and April, I think we can add this to our list of jobs we want from fashion history. <laughs> or what the what jobs yeah. from fashion history? Because <laughs> I don't want some of those jobs. Some yes, others no. Yeah. Um, but Frida's extant wardrobe consists of numerous blouses, skirts, shawls, jewelry that are all quite remarkable in their beauty and construction. Um, but perhaps the most distinctive piece in her closet was to be the Tejuanan resplandor, or literally radiance in Spanish, which is a lace huipil worn as a headdress. These are so cool. <laughs> yeah. We're, uh, we'll post pictures of these, of course. Um, but essentially, the collar of the blouse is used to frame the wearer's face, and then the sleeves hang unused below the chin and over the back of the head. And the origins of the garment date back to the 19th century, but it is really unclear what prompted Tejuana women to take their favorite blouse and basically turn it into headwear. But (laughs) what is known is that by the 1930s and the 1940s, it was the most recognizable aspect of Tejuana dress and one that Frida adopted on a few different occasions. Um, She actually painted herself wearing it in two separate portraits separate self-portraits, I should say, from 1940 and 1943. You have to wonder if it was some woman in the 19th century who was like the most fashionable um, in the village who just decided to put this on her head. <laughs> Let's see how far I can take it. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Valentina walking down the theater runway with yeah. dry ice being like I'm schlaying them. Yeah. <laughs> let's see what let's see let's see what I can push. Yeah, so while Frida's clothing was all about tradition, there was one modern aspect to her appearance that she unapologetically embraced. And we will find out exactly what that was after a brief sponsor break. So I don't know if our listeners caught it earlier, April, but when you were talking about the colorful Nicola Murray photos, you alluded to the fact that Frida wore makeup. Yes. And um, amongst many of her personal effects that were discovered in Casa Azul were various types of cosmetics, which included rouge, a rouge compact, bottles of red nail polish, a a very well-used tube of red lipstick, which all were by Revlon, which is very interesting um, in light of the fact that um, it was one of many beauty brands that expanded into Latin America in the 1940s. Um, Revlon opened a factory in Mexico City in 1948, so it was definitely available at that time. Yeah, and Claire Wilcox, co-curator of the V&A exhibit, she points out that lipstick in particular gave Frida great pleasure, and she often sealed her letters with a red kiss. Um, and I have to say that this adoption of modern makeup by Frida, while glamorous, does it feels a little odd when you consider how sh- deep she was in Mexican tradition. 
It does, but not one that was entirely out of line with her rejection of Western beauty ideals. In fact, she actually used makeup, but on occasion, she used makeup to highlight, not disguise her distinctive features. An eyebrow pencil was also among the many cosmetics that was discovered among her possessions cast, which is amazing. (laughs) And Claire writes, Quote, even bolder than not plucking in between her brows to individuate them was Kahlo's refusal to debilitate her mustache. Her androgynous attributes were a composite of her personality and her complex sexuality. And Frida once said of her own face, she said, of my face, I like the eyebrows and the eyes. Aside from that, I like nothing. I have the mustache and the general face of the opposite sex. Interesting. It is interesting, actually. Um, she spent a lot of time um, with self-introspection, I should say. Well, and also looking at her face because she painted it so frequently. Uh-huh. Absolutely. And from 1949 to 1950, there was actually this Mexican psychology student. Her name was Olga Campo. Uh, and she orchestrated a series of psychological studies of Frida. And she writes of the then 42-year-old artist, Quote, her light tan face was not pretty, perhaps by established norms, but she possessed and even radiated a strange and alluring beauty. She had a special skill for applying makeup and achieving a natural look and spent a lot of time on this effect. She used blush and rice powder by Coty. Her lipstick and nail polish were always in a strong color. And for her eyebrows and lashes, which she carefully combed, she used Talika black powder and she used Trache hand lotion. She was always made up and well-dressed, even when she did not expect visitors. There were only a few times I ever saw her without makeup. And Olga was not alone in her perception of Frida's artfully crafted self-presentation. Numerous photos of Frida confirmed that anyone who met her, anyone who knew her, to them, she was beautiful and composed. Vogue, fashion magazine, wrote about her in 1939 saying, quote, from the bright, fuzzy woolen strings that she plates into her black hair and the colors she puts on her cheeks and lips to the heavy, antique Mexican necklaces and her gaily colored Tijuana blouses and skirts, Madame Rivera seems herself a product of art and like her work, one that is instinctively and calculatingly well-composed. Quote, end quote. She herself was a masterpiece in her own making. She really was. And while Frida wore her makeup, be-ribboned hair, and Tijuana dress as a beguiling uniform, she also wore it as armor, and one that distracted and disguised the pain and suffering that she endured on a daily basis. Frida really used the proportions of her Tijuana dress to masterfully mask her disabilities. And this is actually a part of Circe's essay, but also her thesis of the exhibition, um, was the way in which she used this clothing to do so. And the boxy wipel and wide skirt ensured her comfort, while the proportions allowed her to present this elongated figure. Her elaborately coiffed hairstyle, made-up face, and beautiful jewelry ensured that all incoming gazes were directed to the upward half of her body. But hidden beneath all of her carefully manipulated visage were the realities of Frida's condition. And in addition to the beautiful blouses, dresses, and jewelry on display on the exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum um, are also a number of her medical corsets, her plaster casts, and back braces that were necessary to her daily existence. So integral were they to Frida's life that many of them still retain the shape of her body, molded, 
permanently in that shape after repeated use. However, quote, far from allowing the corset to define her as an invalid, writes Circe, Kahlo decorated and adorned her corsets, making it appear as though she had explicitly chosen to wear them. She included them in the construction of her style as an essential wardrobe item, and they functioned as her second skin. Two hand-painted plaster corsets are among the items on display, and on one, Frida has painted a broken column. And this is actually a motif that would make repeat appearances in her art over the years as a potent symbol of the broken body that lay beneath her carefully crafted image. But what Frida might have used her clothing to disguise, she otherwise laid bare in her artwork. The title of Circe's 2012 exhibition took its name from an illustration entitled Appearances Can Be Deceiving, in which Frida revealed what her Taiwan dress usually concealed. The silhouette of her familiar garments is present, but like an x-ray machine, we are given a glimpse beneath the clothing to see that she wears a medical brace. Her spine is broken again, represented by a cracked column. And again, in the 1944 painting, The Broken Column, Frida's head rests on this fractured symbol of her broken body. Tears stream from her eyes and nails cover her naked body in a very overt allusion to her physical pain. And when in 1938, Frida was quote-unquote discovered and befriended by the French surrealist artist André Breton, she was subsequently labeled as a surrealist herself. And in surrealism, reality is upended, replaced by renderings of imagined worlds, dreamscapes of the artist's imagination, where nothing is quite what it seems. And I myself would certainly designate Frida's work as surrealist. Um, Another uh, signifier might be magical realism, But she herself actually disagreed with the label, saying, They thought I was a surrealist, but I wasn't. I painted my own reality. And pain was very much a part of Frida's reality, but one that was greatly tempered by her art. She also said, I am not sick, I am broken, but I am happy to be alive as long as I can paint. And Frida's health rapidly deteriorated beginning in the early 1950s. She endured many very serious hospitalizations, including the amputation of her right leg due to spreading an uncontrolled gangrene infection. And her indomitable spirit just really couldn't battle her broken body much longer. And Frida passed away in July of 1954. She was only 47 years old, which means she departed from this world far too young, But what she did leave behind her was this really indelible imprint that has immortalized her for future generations, both in her art, the many photographs of her, and of course now her extant clothing and accessories, which are extensions of a woman who, despite all of the difficulties that she lived, breathed, and wore her art. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. Until next time, may you consider yourself as a walking piece of art next time you get dressed. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, where we post daily images to accompany each episode. This is also our Twitter handle. And you can find us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. And as always, we love hearing from you all. So please, if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. And don't forget about our merch store, which you can find at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's teepublic.com forward slash dressed. And please send us pictures of yourself wearing your dress merch. We would love to see it. And check out the new designs we just added. 
Um, I also would like to give a special shout out to my friend Brenda Yanez for helping me with the Spanish pronunciations. And as always, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at How Stuff Works that makes the show possible each week. See you soon. <laughs>